worship you and to glorify you and to be remembered that we can be people of peace in your sight, at peace with you. So we pray that the truth of your word would be spoken this morning, the truth of your word alone be remembered. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are many things in the life and worship of the church in Advent that easily make it my favorite season of the year. Above all, I think, are some of the hymns that we sing. The church in its history has a treasure trove of Christmas hymns that wonderfully and beautifully bring out the heavenly truths of the gospel, focusing on Jesus's birth and his coming again. And so I was struck last week when we changed our gospel hymn, our transitional hymn, to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Mostly it was that, refil- that familiar refrain, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O Israel. I heard a tension between the lyrics and the music that I hadn't quite caught before. The hymn itself is almost somber, maybe sad or, or melancholic, but the lyrics call for us to rejoice. This tension between these two things stuck in my mind and I couldn't ignore it. I think part of this is because I've begun to see in fellow believers around me in the last few years the similar tension in how we talk about our Lord's return. The phrase, come Lord Jesus, used to be said in an expectant, almost a triumphalistic tone, much like the winning battle cry of an army that shouts as their enemy waves their white flag of surrender. But today, the phrase, come Lord Jesus, has become more like a collective refrain, a sighing, a general sighing of the church. When we hear the latest disaster or war or downward spiral of the culture into further sin and depravity, we sigh and we groan the words, come Lord Jesus, because we feel like we just can't bear to see the world get any worse. We long to see it all made new. We long to see the brokenness of the world healed. And there are many virtues that we should strive to grow in, but only one of them has become a common refrain in households. We often say that patience is a virtue, as if to remind ourselves that we lack patience more than any other fruit of the Spirit. In our lack of patience, we can't help but ask God, what is taking you so long? Is 2,000 years not long enough? Can't you see how bad things have gotten? Why won't you do something? We lack patience. And I think this also comes from how we treat time. To us, time is a commodity. It's a resource. And it shows in how we talk about it. Time is something that we spend, something that we spare, something that we waste, or something that we pass away. Time is money and life is short, so we are anxious to spend our time wisely and efficiently because we only have so much of it. And of course, we're angry at those who would dare waste what we believe is our time. And so it's not surprising then that our lack of patience with ourselves and our lack of patience with those around us eventually get extended to God. This is the very situation that Peter is dealing with as he writes his letter that we read this morning. There are some in the church who have begun to disbelieve in the promise of Jesus' return, and they're spreading false teaching about it. Peter's writing to the churches to encourage them and to exhort them as they await the return of their Lord. And his words ring true today just as much as they did 2,000 years ago. Peter reminds us that first, Jesus' return is in fact a promise. 
In verse 9, he says that God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Now here, Peter's getting at how we as humans view time. He reminds us that God's view of time is vastly different from our own. That God sees time with a perspective, with an intensity that we as simple humans can't fully understand. Peter quotes Psalm 90 saying that, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. See, God can take all of human time and he can look at it all at once, like it's one picture right in front of him. But he can also zoom in. He can take one tiny speck of paint one day and he can stretch it out and he can see all of that color in patient weightfulness. And he can see every little bit of it with patient care. You see, God is not like us. He's not limited to living in the moment, another thing we say often. But he actively lives in every moment all the time, all at once. And so when we see time through God's eyes, we come to realize that God's not delayed. God is ever-present. He's not being held back by something else. There's not something keeping him from returning. But rather, Peter says that God is being patient towards us. And more than that, God is being patient for us. Peter tells us in verse 15 that we should count the patience of the Lord as salvation. God tarries because he has the greatest reason to do so. He's got the greatest motivation to wait. He allows time to march on because in his heart he wishes that no one would perish, but that as many as possible will have the time to repent and trust in him for their salvation. It's for our benefit that God chooses to work on his timetable and not ours. When God tarries, it's because he is mercifully extending the opportunity of salvation here on earth. We can see an example of God's patient mercy in Genesis chapter 3. When sin first entered the world, God's reaction was to be mercifully patient with his people. God told Adam and Eve that when they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. In the Hebrew, this comes across more emphatically. as It, it's, it means dying you will die, as if there's no escape from it. It will happen. It's a promise. But we know that Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. They didn't bite the fruit and drop dead. But instead, they lived full, long, earthly lives because God desired that they would repent. Similarly with us, we do not drop dead from the first moment that we sin and are deserving of death. God gives us a whole lifetime. God mercifully extends the possibility of our salvation as well. His patience is our salvation. His tarrying is an act of divine love. But Peter does not want us to think that because God is patient that we should take it for granted. He reminds us of the words that Jesus himself once spoke, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and that we should stay awake lest we be surprised at his return. And when he returns, three things will happen. Everything will be exposed, everything will be judged, and then everything will be remade. And Peter uses fiery and destructive language to talk about Christ's second coming. It can be quite difficult to read because it sounds so terrifying. But we should not take this to mean that God is coming to destroy everything and leave nothing behind. God is not coming simply in wrath. Rather, we should read this like a blacksmith reforging an old sword. The phrase, be exposed, in verse 10, can be translated as burned up or laid bare. 
The image here from Peter is much like a piece of steel or a piece of iron coming out of the, f- the forge fire. And all the impurities, everything that's in it that's not iron or not steel, is brought to the surface and then hammered away. So that's what's left is pure metal, something that you can work with. When Christ comes again, all the impurities of this broken world and all the evil works of mankind will be brought to the surface and laid bare. And then Christ, in his judgment, will hammer it all away. And Peter warns us that in this time there will be nowhere to hide, because the light of God will reveal every wicked deed. Judgment, however, is not the end of this promise. It's not all doom and gloom. Peter tells us that the promise is more than that, but in fact it's about a new heaven and a new earth. Just as the pure metal left behind will be reforged into a new sword, the earth and heaven will be recreated into a new home where only righteousness dwells. Heaven and earth will be gloriously redeemed, not cast away. Peter reminds us, too, that despite his fiery Armageddon-like language, the universe will not end in some impersonal cosmic explosion. We're not just all going to blow up and disappear. But in fact, it's going to be a glorious encounter with a personal God. He says in verse 14 that we will be found by him. God will see us, and we will see our Lord and Savior face to face. It's a beautiful thing. Peter then exhorts us to the main importance of God's promise of return in verse 11, that since we will personally encounter our Lord on his coming, we must ask ourselves what sort of people ought we to be. If the new heaven and earth is a home where righteousness dwells, shouldn't we be making sure that we're made of the same stuff, that we're made of iron or steel? Peter's asking us, God's patient. How are you going to use his patience? How are you going to spend his patience? Continuing our Advent theme of waiting as an action verb, Peter tells us that we ought to be growing in lives of holiness and godliness, so that when Christ comes again, we will be found without spot or blemish. If the return of God is a personal encounter, then it's nothing less than our personal response that matters. Now, true believers are those who are born again. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. As baptized and faithful Christians, we have already been saved. When Christ returns, we will be saved again out of the judgment. Here, in his letter, Peter is reminding us that how we live into our Christian life and growing in our sanctification, that's how we are being saved daily, here and now. Salvation is more than just a single moment. Salvation actually encompasses our entire Christian life. Peter is exhorting us to remember that we must live into our new life in Christ here and now in preparation for our new home. We've got to get ready, because it's coming. We have a responsibility to live holy lives. And this isn't just to say that we must live according to strict religious do's and don'ts. We're not Pharisees. But it's much more than that. To be holy means to be set apart, and to be set apart for God's purposes. God has set us apart for his kingdom work, and therefore God's patience is our time not to just sit around, twiddle our thumbs. It's our time to be on mission. It's our time to go out and to share the gospel news to those who have yet to hear it, and to those who have yet to accept it. If we're so anxious to use our own time wisely, how much more should we make sure that we use God's patience wisely and effectively 
and efficiently. Because we are ambassadors of Christ as Christians. To live and grow in godliness is to consciously live into our new life in Christ. And we do this by casting off sin, by repenting, by striving to be obedient to our God because he knows what's best for us. And to confess our sins when we fail because we know we're not perfect yet. Peter calls us to be diligent. He says, make every effort to grow in your Christ-likeness. This doesn't mean that we all have to live what some might call radically Christian lives. We don't all have to be missionaries or theologians or even pastors. We don't all need to be the next Mother Teresa, getting three hours of sleep and doing wondrous works of mercy and service throughout the week. What we need to do is to live simply into our ordinary Christian lives, faithfully. And that's something that in this culture, in this country, is the most radical thing that you can do, is to simply be faithful. And what's more interesting is that when Peter says this about our ordinary faithfulness in verse 12, he says that in some mysterious way, our lives of holiness and godliness actually hasten the coming of our Lord. Now, Peter doesn't explain what he means by this, but we can make a couple observations. If it's because of our sin and our need for repentance that God decides to wait in his return, then it makes sense that as more and more people live godly and repentant lives, that the less reason God has to wait. This comes from the Jewish thought that if you repented, the Messianic age would come sooner and sooner. And Peter is clearly taking this Jewish thought and extending it and expanding it. More so, Jesus taught that he would return only after the gospel had gone out to all the nations. So as we live faithful lives as witnesses of the gospel to those around us, all the more does Christ draw nearer to his return. This isn't Peter's invitation for us to start speculating about the exact return of our Lord, or not to sit down, pull out some math in our Bibles, find a couple numbers that we think mean some things, and say, ah, he's coming back 12 years from now, just wait, he's coming. But it's a beautiful reminder that God is inviting us to be participants in his kingdom work. He's saying, you're here now, I put you here now, I have something for you, go and do it. How amazing is it that there's a place for us in what God is doing in his world? Lastly, Peter assures us that as we live as true disciples of Christ, we can be at peace when he returns. This is who we ought to be when our Savior comes in glory and in majesty. We are to be people at peace with our God. That's what this Sunday is all about in Advent. And yet, as Peter mentioned earlier in this letter, there are those back then and there are those even here today who would seek to rob us of this peace. People who take scripture and they twist it, manipulating it, and teaching things that go against it, that deny the faith that was once handed down and passed down through the church. Peter says these false teachers speak from their ignorance of the difficult things in the Bible, mostly from Paul, in which they do not understand. And yet, their interpretations are still things that people hear and these are not simple disagreements. It's not saying, oh, I read this scripture this way and you read it that way and maybe both have a little bit of truth in it and it's fine, just pick one. No, these are interpretations that lead to destruction, to destructions of the false teachers and to destructions of those who fall into their teaching. So if we want to avoid misunderstanding and distorting scripture, we need to, as Peter commands, grow in two things. 
He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And our collect for this Sunday is perfectly suited to remind us of this charge. We prayed this morning, blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's only by the grace of God that we can really enter into and understand the scriptures. We can only do it faithfully by his grace. We can only, by his grace, hold fast to that blessed hope that can be found in the scriptures to receive what our Lord Jesus Christ came to do as the word incarnate. We are people of the knowledge and grace of God. We are people of word and sacrament. These two things together are what prepares us for his coming again. And as we await this Advent season, anticipating the return of Jesus, it's a time for us to look at ourselves, to take stock of our own lives. Are you becoming who you already are in Christ? Are you living your life as you ought to, growing in holiness and godliness? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of God? If you feel like the answer to any of these is no, or maybe not, or not as much as I'd like, I encourage you, in our next semester, find a little church, join a little church. These are the spaces here at Christ Church where outside Sunday morning, we gather together, we receive the grace of God, we study his word together, we witness to the world, and we encourage one another as we seek to live faithful lives. Friends, let us not be surprised when the Lord returns, but let us be the people that we ought to be, people at peace with our God, hastening his coming as we live our faithful lives as his disciples here on earth. And then we can eagerly and joyfully say, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.